Hello and welcome to Future Lab, the podcast, where we explore how the latest advances in technology and science are helping to build a better world. I'm Lucy Johnston. At the moment, every other film seems to be about superheroes. And at some point or other, I'd say most of us have dreamed of having at least one superpower. For me, I always wanted to be able to run really, really fast, like Chitara from the Thundercats. But if I'm honest, I'd settle for simply being able to fly. In this episode, we're going to meet just a couple of the incredible people out there who are turning dreams of superhuman ability into real-life possibility. From super strength to moving objects purely by thinking about it. And we'll find out what real-world applications there are beyond just making our childhood imaginings come true. I think there's no question that this whole area of technology being used to enhance or augment humans, we're just at the very cusp of that. I want to introduce you to our first super scientist, Tan Lee, the founder and CEO of neuroinformatic company Emotive. One of the things that we've been able to do at Emotive, for example, is to allow someone to move an object just by thinking. Tan is a tech entrepreneur working on science she hopes will revolutionise our understanding of the brain. She's developed a device that can be worn on your head and interprets your brain activity, allowing you to move objects purely with the power of thought. But before we get into that, Tan has her own superhero origin story, which begins in the early 80s in post-war Vietnam. This was at the time after the Vietnam War where the country was in a, a state of turmoil. It was very difficult for a lot of families. But in our particular case, we were targeted because we had political affiliations. And for that reason, my mother wanted to make sure that my sister and I would have a chance at a better future. And so she wanted to attempt an escape. They planned to escape via boat, but it was an incredibly dangerous journey with no guarantee of rescue. We were very fortunate. After five days and nights at sea, we were rescued by a British oil rig just off of um, the coast of Malaysia and um, taken into the refugee camp in Malaysia where we stayed for several months before we were given a third country of asylum. And that's really where the upward trajectory for my, my story started, because Australia opened its arms to us as refugees. We were lucky enough to come to Australia at a time where the social sentiment was quite open to immigrants. And it did feel like you could start a new life in Australia and there were enough welcoming signs that made it possible for us to turn over a new leaf. And my mother always ensured that we appreciated that opportunity. And, and I believe that I've carried that, that sense of belief in the future, that sense of hope. After making this journey at five years old, Tan is ready to start a new life. Growing up in a new country and a new culture is both challenging and formative. Growing up 
As a young immigrant, as a refugee, as a, a very poor family trying to make ends meet, it was a very tough time. And you know, you don't really fit in. You don't really know where you belong. You have a very challenging sense of of identity. And so, the concept of being an outsider, being someone who isn't really established in the norm of how things are, you have a certain level of tolerance of of a lot of change and transformation that's going to happen throughout your life. And you get to see it every day. And growing up in the 80s, there was one final source of inspiration that set Tan on her journey. Oh my goodness, I'm like any other child growing up in the 80s watching Star Wars. And it really fascinated me. It inspired me. It was exciting. I just wanted to be able to to move things with, with my mind, whatever I was doing at home. But I was certainly very stubborn as a child. I, I knew that it wasn't moving, but I always kept trying in case I had some special ability to make it move at some point by trying harder. But that stubborn kid was not about to let a little thing like physics stop her from realising her dream. After the break. This podcast is brought to you by a medical diagnostics company called Randox. And over the series, we're going to be hearing about the work they do by the people who work there. My name's Tiffany Dougherty. I'm a senior team leader within the immunoassay department at Randox. In short, Tiffany's a scientist who works in research and development across a large number of areas. I work within the clinical immunoassay R&D biochip team. I feel like no two days are the same and I've never had a boring day at my job, which I love. It's just really rewarding knowing that you're making a difference in the diagnostic industry. Tiffany's team has been working on a way to revolutionise medical testing. So our team work on the development of clinical tests for um, a range of disease conditions such as thyroid disease or fertility diseases. We develop these tests for our in-house series of evidence immunoanalyzers. The tests being developed are conducted on a tiny but powerful piece of technology developed by Randox called the Biochip. Later in the episode, we'll come back to Tiffany to find out what exactly the Biochip is and how it works. Now, back to the Future Lab podcast. After growing up in Australia, but dreaming of Endor, Tan Lee was not able to become a Jedi, but her eye was soon drawn by a whole new world of opportunity. I realised that the world is being shaped by technology. And in this day and age, if I wanted to really have a part in creating the future, then I have to go out there and do that. And so it became a very strong calling for me. And that's why I left and decided to try my hand at being a technology entrepreneur, even though I didn't have a background in technology at all. And for someone who grew up wanting to use the force, what better area of specialisation to pursue than the mind? I've always been fascinated by the brain. I think when you have an Asian mother who drums into your whole sense of being that it's extremely important to have education, to grow your mind, to continue to pursue fresh ideas, to think outside the box. You're already quite primed to think about the brain in a very malleable, 
transformative way. But I also became particularly fascinated by what we might be able to achieve by interfacing with the brain directly. And yet at the same time, if you look at the instruments available for us to really understand the brain, it was very limited uh, in terms of what was available. So the entrepreneurial part of me was really fascinated by that. So Tan starts a company, Emotive, and begins working on an entirely new way of understanding the brain through technology. In many ways, I was not shackled by what I didn't know. And I think that was in and of itself extremely liberating. Once you know what's not possible, you become more limited in your sense of belief. And because I just didn't know better, I think I was a lot more audacious and more emboldened to try a lot of things. And I wasn't afraid of failure because I just didn't know how hard the problem set was going to be. The most common way of measuring brain activity is through an EEG. That's an electroencephalogram. Picture a little swimming cap covered in stickers with wires spiraling out in all directions. It measures the electrical signals fired by neurons. I remember talking to a number of EEG experts and all of them told me that what I was trying to do was just not possible. So I thought, well, well, that's fine if you don't believe so, then I guess you're not the right person um, for the team. And so I assembled a very eclectic group of people, none of whom, in fact, were EEG experts. But outsiders, as Tan knew all about, often bring a fresh perspective. So she gathered experts in machine learning, physics and evolutionary biology and set about designing a system that could measure brain activity and use machine learning to decipher the signals a brain is sending out. We wanted to see if we could train a machine learning algorithm to pick up the electrical patterns associated with a very specific set of thoughts. Like an EEG, Tan's device has lots of sensors that are attached to your head and measure electronic activity, and then feed that information into a machine learning program. So we observe a baseline neutral state of when your brain is just hanging out, relaxed, breathing normally, nothing specific about that state. Once you've done that, we then ask you to think very specifically about the action that you want to train. To test the technology, they decided to try to get the software to recognise the difference between resting and pushing an object with your mind. Just like Tan tried to do in her bedroom all those years ago. And what we're able to do is the machine learning algorithm is quite flexible. It recognises those distinct features associated with that idea and it compares it to the neutral state. So once you've trained that algorithm between the neutral and the action state, every time you try and think move forward again, if you can come up with a very similar idea as what you did when you trained it, it should be able to recognise that distinct state and it will then trigger the response. And eventually, it was ready for Tan to try it out. I sat down and I trained a neutral state and then I trained an action state and it was push, so push uh, basically a little cube forward. And I remember after training it, I just sat there And then they said, try it. (laughs) And it didn't move when I just sat there. And then I said, okay, I'm going to try it now. And I tried thinking push and it just kind of moved a little bit. And I caught myself. I said, no way, that's just not possible. 
So I tried again, and it was the most surreal experience that you could possibly imagine. It was just unbelievable. And and now, I mean, I've done it many, 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 many thousands of times. But there are fleeting moments when I get that feeling again, where I think, "Wow, this is really amazing." So Tan had experienced her dream of using the Force, even if the things she was moving were digital shapes rather than lifting spaceships out of swamps. It's still a huge moment. We don't have a way of really deciphering unique thoughts per se, but what we can do is we can associate very distinct. Ideas and thought patterns with a specific command, and that's what you're able to do. It's worth mentioning that because the algorithm learns by training on a huge amount of data, it's not always clear exactly which signal is causing the cube to move. And some have suggested it uses microscopic muscle movements rather than brain data. But demonstrations have shown that, however, it's working, cubes can be moved, and not just cubes. I've seen it in action. Last summer at FutureLab Live, we integrated emotive brainware devices with Scalextric cars to enable visitors to race just through the power of thought. Some people were really good at it. I watched a lot of people having a go, but it's clear you need to really focus. When I tried it, my car ended up pretty slow, probably because my mind was elsewhere, distracted by running the event that day. But it was great to have a go and be a Jedi just for a moment. And Tan is hopeful this technology can be used for all sorts of things beyond racing with our minds. So one of the big things that we focus on at Emotive is empowering the global neuroscience research community. When I first started in the field, it was really left to people who could get big budgets. Could garner a lot of support because neuroscience equipment is really expensive to acquire. And so, one of the very early goals that we had was to make sure that this equipment was universally affordable, available, easy to use, so that we can get this out to as many people as we can. If you can train your brain to recognize certain states, such as stress or concentration, and even visualize them, in future it could theoretically help people train their minds to enter or leave such states at will. Unfortunately, we don't have tools right now that give us any indication as to how our brain is going, and we, because of that, we don't even know how to recognize when our brain is not doing so well. So, if we actually had tools, after a while, we might notice the signs. We might say, "Ah,、oh, I, I know this feeling. I recognize this symptom because I know that when I'm like this, my app tells me that actually my brain is on overdrive." Tan has released her technology into the world. While this has led to wonderful surprises, it also means she's lost full control over the technology's future. If a third party tries to make a device to help people with locked-in syndrome to communicate, that could change lives. But what if one day a company tries to use it to learn when employees are no longer focusing? I think it's something that all inventors have to grapple with, and the idea that I have in my mind, and the word that I use, is stewardship. So it's not so much about inventing something and throwing it out in the wild and saying, "Hey, I'm going to let whatever happens happens." It's making sure that you are continuing to be a part of the conversation and thinking about how does this technology evolve in a way that continues to thrive in the spirit and evolve in the spirit of how you intended it to be used in the first place. While there's a long way still to go, 
the emotive technology is certainly sparking imaginations and inspiring experimentation, giving us a window into the complex neurological world and helping potentially decipher brain conditions which impact billions worldwide, not to mention opening up huge potential for how we might more intuitively collaborate with the world of AI and robotics in the future. We may never fully understand the complexities of the brain, but using her technology, Tan is attempting to find new ways of probing those mysteries. And it may take us so much further than being able to move objects with our minds. Future Lab is brought to you by Randox. Earlier, we met Tiffany, who works in Randox's research and development team. Now, she's back to tell us more about the innovative testing technology known as the biochip. Biochips are actually a physical ceramic 9 by 9 millimeter surface. And on that surface, there'll be spatially distinct discrete test regions. So it's providing the clinician with a more in-depth clinical picture. Here's how medical testing usually works. If someone is feeling unwell, they visit their doctor who will investigate their symptoms, first perhaps by taking a blood test. So when you visit your GP, you'll get a blood draw. From that sample, they'll look for different biomarkers. A biomarker is a measurement of an individual's health. So it's it's just basically a measurement of the status of a certain, say, protein or hormone in a person's blood. Traditionally, biomarkers are well-established and associated with certain disease states. Typically, a doctor sends a patient for multiple tests before they can diagnose what their illness is. Randox noticed how inefficient this process can be, so they wanted to find a way to run more tests with just a single patient sample. This is exactly what the biochip lets them do. On the platform, there's certain discrete test regions which house different tests. So at the minute, we've got the capacity to house up to 44 DTRs or discrete test regions on the one biochip. So once the sample's added to the biochip and the relevant regions, a light signal will be generated from each of the test regions. And this is simultaneously detected using our digital imaging technology. So you're going you're gonna to be provided with multiple patient sample results from just one sample. This biochip is able to gather a much better picture of what's going on in a patient without the hassle of doing multiple blood tests over several days or weeks. And so you get a much more efficient diagnosis of the illness faster but this isn't the only thing the biochip can do. We'll be back later in the episode with more on that. We just heard about technologies to help us move things with our minds, but what about moving objects with our bodies? Super strength is possibly the biggest superhero fantasy. Who wouldn't want to be able to pull a car out of the mud with the strength of the Hulk or Wonder Woman? And with a little help, super strength is no longer the domain of the movies. You won't even need to go to the gym. There's no question we are, cre- we are creating superhumans with, with, this, uh, with this technology. Our target over the next five years is to have more than 40,000 of these machines in the field. This is Ben Wolf, the co-founder, chairman and CEO of Sarcos Technology and Robotics Corporation. Ben and I connected on Zoom. And behind him on his screen was a lineup of four menacing looking robot exoskeletons. Picture a headless robotic body with a space for a person to stand in the middle. These are the first iterations, the alpha versions of their pioneering technology. 
So these are four of our alpha versions that are behind me. Uh, and you can see that unlike a humanoid robot that's got a body like a human does, in this case, there's a cavity that allows the human to step inside of the machine. So it takes about 30 seconds to get into the machine, get strapped in, turn it on, and then you can start walking. And you can walk at up to three miles an hour. And you can also lift and manipulate up to 200 pounds or 100 pounds in each arm. And you have all of the different degrees of freedom, the, the flexibility, the range of motion that you'd have if you weren't wearing the machine. And in terms of what it feels like, even though the suit itself weighs a couple hundred pounds, it supports all of its own weight all the way through the structure into the ground or into the floor. They're pretty similar to what Tom Cruise wears in Edge of Tomorrow, or what Ripley uses to punch the alien queen into space. There have been a number of movies that show this kind of technology. Aliens was one of the first. It was first depicted actually in a book that Robert Heinlein wrote called Starship Troopers, uh, going back to 19, you know, 1960 something. And so this is an idea that has existed in science fiction for a long time. There have been a number of Hollywood efforts to, to show machines like this. One of those movies actually used our design as the basis for what they showed in the movie. So, you know, it it's definitely captures a lot of imagination. By wearing one of these suits, you can lift the equivalent weight of a washing machine or a full-grown adult panda without breaking a sweat. It feels like you're wearing a backpack that weighs around 10 or 15 pounds. So when you lift 200 pounds, you now have 200 pounds of payload, you have 200 pounds of suit around you, so more than 400 pounds total, but you feel like you're lifting five pounds. We can actually make the suit feel like it's got zero gravity so that it feels like you're not lifting anything at all, but what we've discovered through our trials is that that creates a lack of a sense of awareness. We humans have this ability, even without looking at what's in our hand, we kind of know where it is in space around us. And when we went to zero gravity, it was a little disoriented. And also imagine that helps with balance as well. I was curious about the center of gravity and whether that changes with all of that, that around you. That, that's right. And the robot actually relies on your own sense of balance and your vestibular system to balance itself. So just as you change your center of gravity, if you have a backpack on that weighs 10 or 15 pounds, you do the same thing when you're picking up a heavy object with the exoskeleton and the robot just automatically adjusts with you. Sarkos first began designing these exoskeletons back in 2000 as part of the DARPA challenge from the US Department of Defense. Prior to that time, the company had actually done a lot with humanoid robots. So the development of these bipedal walking human form factor robots is something that the company had been doing for a decade before then. It's such impossibly difficult technology, isn't it? To get a humanoid robot to walk is unbelievably difficult. It, it is, but it's even more difficult to then make a humanoid robot that has the physical structure to allow a human to be inside of it. So on a scale of difficulty, you know, making a walking humanoid robot that can balance and use its legs and its arms, that's a 10 out of 10. Making a robot that then has the physical capacity and the control and software schemes to allow a human to be inside of it safely is a 15 out of 10 in terms of difficulty. <laughs> Spotting the potential applications for a super strong exoskeleton outside of the military Ben and his team took over the company in 2015 and immediately began finessing the design. The first iterations of the exoskeleton had been around for, oh, about 10 years. And they were hydraulically powered machines. And that meant that they had to be tethered to a hydraulic source with, uh, a, with a cable, with a, with, a, with, a, with a hydraulic power supply. 
And that meant that it couldn't really walk any distance. You know, you're, you're limited to 10 or 15 feet, however long your cable is. And it used a huge amount of power. 6,500 watts of power per hour was the average amount of power consumption, which meant putting batteries on the machine just wasn't really possible. You know, you get 10 or 20 minutes of runtime out of it. One of the big things that we started to focus on as soon as we bought the business was to convert the machine from being a hydraulically powered machine to now operating all electrically and using less than 500 watts of power an hour. That, that evolution to using a lot less power means that we can now get hours of operation on an untethered basis. So that was a big heavy lift to make that transition. <laughs> Literally heavy lift. So, par pardon the pun, pardon the pun. Could you talk us through a little bit more about actually what's happening, what the exoskeleton's doing, what the human's doing in this partnership? Sure. So the exoskeleton has about 125 sensors on board, and it is sensing what the human's direction is, essentially. So as the, as the human operator moves his or her arms or legs, the robot is detecting the smallest amount of movement and direction from the human operator. And it's then just flowing along with the human so that you're not having to think about operating the machine. Processing power is roughly equivalent to what you would find if you had three servers all working on this. So tremendous amount of processing power. It's interpreting the signals from the sensors and then it's directing the machine to follow along with you. Wow, does it take practice? It's extremely natural. So if you were to visit us in Salt Lake City and get inside of the suit yes, with, um, with, 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 <laughs> with a few minutes of training, you would be able to start walking at three miles an hour and lifting up to 200 pounds or you know 90 kilos of weight and manipulating it. Now, the more complex the task, the more you will get efficient as you spend more time in the machine, just like using any tool. But in terms of just being able to get in it, start using it, start manipulating things in the real world, extremely intuitive to use. Robots capable of exerting huge amounts of force are usually kept away from humans and their squishy bodies. So it was an incredible challenge to make sure these robots move with rather than against their soft centers. We are doing a tremendous amount of work around safety. Uh, as you can imagine, putting somebody inside of a very powerful machine, safety is paramount for us. If you are walking and you trip, and you try and recover, you think about how a human stutter steps to try and right their balance before they fall down. You do exactly the same thing in the suit because it has the ability to move along with you. So if you were walking, carrying something and you tripped, you stutter step, you try and recover just as you would without having to think about it. Again, it's very intuitive. If you do wind up falling down, the suit has the ability to allow you to get back up again. I really want to have a go. <laughs> <laughs> Please come to Future Lab. <laughs> now the weightlifters among you may be saying, hang on, I can lift 200 pounds. But what if your job is to move awkward objects that weigh that much all day long? It's slow, repetitive and can be harmful or even dangerous work. So some of the industries that we're focused on with the exoskeleton include the construction industry, where every job is different. You know, every task every day is somewhat different. So there's a lot of dynamicism and variation in what a construction worker lifts and manipulates. In the manufacturing space, whether you're manufacturing airplanes or vessels or rail cars, any kind of a large manufacturing effort, uh, there's a lot of components that are being brought together and manipulated to be able to make those machines. And so manufacturing has a huge opportunity for us. 
warehousing and logistics. You hear about all of the e-commerce warehouses that are short of workers, the ability to lift and manipulate, load a truck, unload a truck. Uh, that's another big opportunity for us with the exoskeleton. Uh, we've identified about 16 million jobs in the U.S. alone that we think would benefit, economically benefit, and safety-wise benefit from our machines being deployed. That's brilliant, because so often in big industry, the humans are seen as the weak link you know, in terms of efficiency or speed, but you're proving that actually the human isn't the weakest link. Maybe strength-wise they are, but in terms of intelligence and focus and you know the ability to make the judgment, the human is the strong link. That's right, and it really comes down to you know, this difference between human intelligence and artificial intelligence, and, and the fact that the human mind is so much more capable, orders of magnitude more capable than the fastest supercomputers we have in the world. You know, most people don't realize, they think about artificial intelligence, they think about what Hollywood is showing us in movies, and the reality is we're nowhere close to that. We're decades or maybe even centuries away from the kind of things that Hollywood is showing us when it comes to artificial intelligence. There's a long way to go for machines to be able to come close to what we can deliver in terms of intellect and wisdom and judgment. Sarkos are currently working on the second version of the exoskeleton, the beta. The concept of being able to make one of the machines adjustable for people of different heights, that's something we did not focus on for the alpha but we are focusing on for the beta. Our goal is to be able to have people that range from five feet tall to six foot four, all be able to use the machine. The alpha version was only for people from five foot 10 to six foot two. And so we're, we're broadening the applicability for different operators of different sizes. I'm only five foot two, so I'm really delighted to know that I might be able to try the beta version. So thank you for that. <laughs> So, so I'm only five foot six, and I have to tell you, it was it was frustrating. I wasn't really, you know, it wasn't designed for me for the alpha, but but the beta will be. <laughs> I think there's no question that this whole area of technology being used to enhance or augment humans, we're just at the very cusp of that. I think that's going to be an explosive area over the next decade or two. So the era of the superhuman is arriving. But while these technologies might get us closer to the telekinesis and super strength seen in the movies, interestingly, the applications are so far much more about the real world, about understanding the human mind, or about keeping workers safe from injury and strain in manual jobs. And it's not about replacing humans with better options. It's about augmenting and supporting humans to do what we do best. But maybe I'll have to wait just a little longer before I get my super speed. Thanks so much to our guests Tan Lee from Emotive and Ben Wolf from Sarkos. I'm Lucy Johnston, and this podcast is brought to you by Randox and the Goodwood Festival of Speed. If you're enjoying this series of Future Lab, please take a moment to follow, rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps new listeners find the show. Future Lab is brought to you by Randox. Earlier we heard from Tiffany Doherty about how Randox Biochip technology is revolutionising the world of medical diagnostics. 
This biochip lets doctors run a number of different tests using one blood sample from a patient in a single go. This helps diagnose patients who are presenting with symptoms and can also be used for early detection of health problems, sometimes even spotting potential illnesses before the patient shows any symptoms. For example, troponin is the gold standard for diagnosing a heart attack, but we have markers on our biochip for like heart fatty acid binding protein, which is actually an early marker of heart attack. There's a protein found in your heart muscles that's released into the bloodstream during a heart attack. So if you combine troponin, FABP, and then other markers such as CKMB and myoglobin, which are also well established, you're able to provide a more accurate diagnosis and a quicker diagnosis by building on the clinical picture. The biochip can also be used outside of the medical context in order to screen food. We can actually test, say, for example, wine for different additives. We have tests, say, for antimicrobials in honey, for additives in milk. You know, foods are required to meet certain standards. We'll be exploring the other applications for the biochip in upcoming episodes of the podcast. In the meantime, find out more about the work Randox does at randoxhealth.com.